Hi there. You're listening to Development Unplugged, hosted by the Canadian Council for International Cooperation. Here we are providing a platform for cutting-edge thinking and debate on global issues and international cooperation. Whether you're a social sciences major, a journalist in pursuit of answers, a program officer brainstorming on that next project, or the CEO of a nonprofit, this is your source for all things international cooperation. I'm your host, Nick Moyer. In this podcast, produced with the support of Crestview Strategy, one of Canada's fastest growing public affairs agencies, we discuss the intersectionality of Canadian aid, trade, diplomacy, and security. And with me are four guests who will explore the path forward with respect to Canada's international engagement under the new minority government and the current national and global landscape. Rachel Vincent is the co-executive director of Nobel Women's Initiative. Welcome. Thank you, Nick. Nice to be here. Rudyard Griffiths is the chair of Monk Debates, and welcome. Hey, great to be with you today. And we're also joined by Brian Kingston, who is vice president of policy, international and fiscal at the Business Council of Canada. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Nick. And Nalima Gulrajani is a visiting fellow at the Canadian International Council and also a senior research fellow at the Overseas Development Institute in the UK. Welcome, Nalima. Thanks for the invitation, Nick. Well, it's a pleasure to speak to you all today. Um, you know, I think it goes without saying that international development isn't just about aid or uh, official development assistance, but it's really a, a, an assemblage of a rather complex series of actions that impact each other and hopefully are contributing to positive global progress that's inclusive for everyone. Um, aid, trade, diplomacy, and security all make up portions of Canada's international efforts and all have implications on how Canada engages in the world and, and how the world engages with Canada. Now, foreign policy is also affected by domestic policy and public opinion too. And in today's global context, it seems like things are changing so quickly. Uh, we've seen just in the last weeks the um, situation uh, flare up in Iran and between Iran and the U.S., um, the downing of the, uh, of the Ukrainian uh, airline flight um, over Iran, which has touched Canadians deeply. Um, but more broadly, we're also seeing increased instability around the world. And climate change also is compounding um, you know, other trends that we're seeing around the rise of populism and nationalism, authoritarianism, anti-feminism. And these are all challenging uh, established global structures val and the values that we've come to associate with the international uh, world order. Of course, as interests and institutions that we used to believe were stable, um, although that could be contested as well, um, it seems like progress is at risk. Human rights are under attack, uh, the collective security internationally, multilateral organizations. It seems like all the institutions we've taken for granted are being challenged. Now, we have uh, a liberal government in Canada that was elected uh, with commitments to increase Canada's engagement in the world with sort of a famous statement around Canada's back that Trudeau made following the 2015 election. And certainly Canada has an important role to play around the world and, and has uh, in many respects. But here we are uh, to talk about what good foreign policy is and how Canada can have uh, the best potential impact and most effective foreign policy, perhaps. We'll try to elucidate some of the answers to that question of what that looks like um, in a changing world order. And so I thought we'd start maybe just by hearing from all of you what you think constitutes good foreign policy and maybe put on that a Canadian lens. Um, I'm not sure necessarily who to start you with, but I'll just uh, jump out and, uh, and ask uh, Rachel Vincent uh, if you'd like to jump in. Well, you raise a lot of important issues, and I, I think Canada's on the right path 
to be honest. It's it's one of a few handful of countries in the world that in the last uh, in the last uh, government or the la- when it had a majority announced a feminist foreign policy. It has not articulated in detail what that feminist foreign policy is. But they did articulate the aid part of that policy in the form of the Feminist International Assistance Policy, which they launched in 2017. What is a feminist foreign policy? Well, really, it's a policy that prioritizes gender equality, enshrines human rights and other traditionally marginalized groups and allocates significant resources to achieve that whole vision and, of course, ultimately seeks through the implementation to disrupt the, the typical power structures that have led us to conflict and war in so many countries around the world. So, And it's also very intersectional, to use that, that fabulous word. But it's co- I guess for our purposes, it's, it's comprehensive. So it goes across aid, trade, defense, and diplomacy. And I think that's where... The rubber hits the road, and that's where Canada really has, you know, I think the, 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 that's where the real work begins. Well, thank you for that. And I think we will do ourselves justice by going a little bit deeper into what that means. But I'd like to ask others, when you think about good foreign policy and, and what, what comes to mind? Um, Rudyard, maybe I can ask you. We are at a bit of a, a watershed uh, moment in for, Canadian foreign policy. And a lot of our kind of previous assumptions about how the world would work in the 20th century have been um, kind of radically challenged uh, in the last three to four years. So I think, I think Canada is at, a, is at a difficult moment because we uh, are understandably, I think, reluctant to, to just uh, uh, concede the extent to which an older order, the, the post-war order that we thrived in, uh, has come to an end. And uh, in this new kind of clash of rivals, uh, this kind of international game of thrones, uh, I think it's time that to really start fundamentally challenging uh, many of our deep, deepest held assumptions about uh, what our foreign policy prerogatives are, the strategies and tactics to which uh, we need to apply to them, to, to advance uh, our own national interests, our own vision of um, how the global commons uh, should unfold. So I think it's a kind of back to the drawing board uh, moment. It's a, a valuable time to have a podcast like this and a discussion like this. Uh, because again, I think many of these comfortable assumptions that we've lived with, that I grew up with, uh, are just not relevant to, to uh, charting out our course in an increasingly dangerous uh, and conflicted world. Well, thank you for that. I wonder, you know, maybe I could ask uh, Brian to speak to this from sort of the Canadian Business Council's perspective, perhaps. Um, you know, maybe you could add to that where you might think Canada has been effective in its foreign policy or where it hasn't. Sure, yeah. You know, I think there are there are really four key principles that, that we look at when we think about what would constitute a good foreign policy and how we evaluate how uh, the government has done. And you know, the first is recognizing uh, what's been said regarding some of the, the key changes that we're witnessing uh, in the world right now. We need a, a far more pragmatic and more realistic approach to foreign policy, which I don't think uh, we've had. And this, this has to be done to advance our national interests, but also to strengthen our defenses against things like cybersecurity threats. 
um, you know, as a middle power, uh, our interests will be protected by constructive relationships with other countries. And that's becoming increasingly important in this current context. Second point is that uh, the U.S. is and will remain our uh, preeminent economic partner and defense partner. You know, like it or not, this is the reality and that will not change. So we need to double down efforts uh, to build a constructive relationship, maintain a constructive relationship uh, with the U.S. The key change here, though, is that uh, we, can, uh, we can't assume, as we have in the past, that the U.S. will always have our back uh, out in the world. Um, that was a fairly mm-hmm. uh, comfortable assumption that we've been able to make. And if, if anything we've learned over the last couple of years is we can no longer rely on that. Um, the third important point here is that as a middle power, um, multilateral institutions are absolutely critical to us achieving our objectives. Uh, and what we've witnessed over the past few years has been a decline uh, in the power and influence of these institutions. So a good Canadian foreign policy has to uh, include robust support for things like NATO uh, and the WTO on the commercial side. Uh, and then finally, uh, I think foreign policy has to be better coordinated in Canada with with other uh, elements. So in particular on the development side where we don't see as much coordination between business, private sector and the government's development objectives. And I just don't think that's going to work in, in this uh, highly interconnected world. A, a good recent example is uh, Africa where we're looking at some of the commercial opportunities there. Uh, but you simply can't focus solely on commercial opportunities in Africa without thinking about development, uh, it's just not possible. And yet we don't see that level of coordination taking place. So those would be kind of the four principles that I'd like to see guide uh, a a rethink of our foreign policy. Mm, Thank you. Nalima, do you agree with what you've heard? Would you like to add anything around sort of where Canada's foreign policy seems to have been effective or or where improvements are needed? Yes. Thanks, Nick. Um, I'd like to respond to, to a few of the comments, um, perhaps, to start with. Um, the first is, I think, the, the identification of a crisis of multilateralism and growing great power conflict definitely um, is correct. But I think perhaps a more promising um, dimension of what's happening globally is a growing recognition of the interde- interdependencies that exist between us in Canada and, and the rest of the world, um, a gradual and growing acceptance of a shared global commons, um, greater awareness of those transnational linkages, such that I think a good foreign policy nowadays is not just about development serving diplomatic, economic and defence goals, but actually about achieving development ones. Um, in other words, we've definitely moved from a paradigm where development is purely about charity. It is very much um, a strategic um, part of our foreign policy arsenal. But the strategic element comes from actually achieving development goals overseas. So we've moved beyond a Cold War world where aid is used to cultivate allies. And we actually can now, Canada, see that achieving development goals is in our interest, whether that be reducing Canadians' exposure to, to violence or conflict overseas that touch us, as, for example, the, the recent um, airline disaster in Iran, or in terms of climate change. But I do think an important caveat is that when aid is used for strategic ends and the recognition that there are domestic benefits to be had from development assistance, that there is also the potential risk for aid or, or development um, development investment more generally to not be the most efficient or effective. 
um, and such that we might not be maximizing the actual overall global development outcomes by virtue of trying to seek some domestic gain. And I think there are important trade-offs to be had. In other words, we might not be maximizing development outcomes, but at the same token, we, we recognize that achieving those development outcomes are in our interest. You all raise really important points, and you've all in some way touched on policy coherence. And I, I am struck with the fact that we have seen in the last six years uh, a merger of uh, former CEDA into global affairs, which now under that department has foreign affairs, trade, and development. Um, I wonder if we could maybe talk a little bit about what a comprehensive approach to foreign policy could really look like. Um, you know, acknowledging that we really do seem to see Canada feeling perhaps a bit more vulnerable on the global scene, whether it's our vulnerability to U.S.-China trade relationships, the flare-up of the situation with Iran, um, you know, and challenges to the multilateral order and, and, and really challenges to a lot of the principles that Canada has been uh, promoting globally. Um, we do have, uh, certainly on the development side, uh, a really robust, established um, feminist international assistance policy uh, that can be built upon. But you know, there are questions about how it can be best implemented and its uh, intersections with the trade agenda. It's one of the pieces. I wonder, Rachel, could you get us maybe going on the conversation around um, policy coherence and sort of how we can build upon, or maybe your perspective on building upon the feminist international assistance, perhaps towards, as you, as you mentioned, a feminist foreign policy. What would that mean practically for policy coherence? as others around this uh, table have already pointed out, aid is really part of a larger foreign policy perspective or uh, framework. And we have to step back and really look at the role Canada can play in the world, which I think Brian really um, started to articulate. We're not the U.S., we're not China, we're not Russia. Um, so what can we do? I think the the way forward is to really step back and, and look at how the different pieces come together. Are sanctions working for us? Is falling in line with the U.S. on sanctions working for us as an instrument? There's been a stepping up of use of sanctions. I'm, I'm not sure that's working for us. And there's some... Um, you know, I think we have to, be, we have to make, forge our own path, and there are allies. Uh, and the middle powers working together are going to be able to do more than trying to uh, play nice with the U.S. I think the U.S. trade relationship, while not my expertise, will always exist. It is our major trading partner, but it does not mean that we have to fall in line with the U.S., on questions of foreign policy, nor should we be. Um, investing in women's movements and in social movements on the ground, on conflict prevention, some of the traditional ways that Canada has contributed globally is the way to go, and aid is in that context. How do we look at aid in that broader context of what our goals are? Because security in other parts of the world ultimately benefits Canada. It helps us with our trade relationships and it helps slow down the massive migration around the globe and some of the other major crises. So that's just to get us started. It's a, it's a topic worthy of ours. Mm, it certainly is. Um, I wonder if, uh, Nalima, you'd like to pick up on any of those points. Uh, certainly you raised the, the importance of uh, development assistance being used in more strategic and comprehensive ways I think in some ways, uh, Rachel, you've opened the conversation of development as uh, a contributor to advancing democratic values and, and security around the world as well, um, and support for um, 
you know, uh, civil society movements and their the role they can play. Nalima, do you want to build off of that? Yeah, Nick, thanks for that. Um, so I think, you know, you started off by talking about the merger between um, CETA and Foreign Affairs to create Global Affairs Canada. And I think you're right to, to say that that offers potential an opportunity, really, for adopting a more comprehensive approach to foreign policy. Um, but I think it's an approach that maybe has not... Um, met the full weight of expectations on it. Um, so the 2018 peer review of Canada's development assistance suggested that the mechanisms of policy coherence that do exist in the amalgamated department have not really been used proactively. Um, and it's interesting, some analysis that, that I've done and some work, um, in 2017, Canada dispersed official development assistance across 19 departments and agencies that excluded GAC. Um, and only Korea dispersed assistance amongst a higher number of departments, um, which suggests there is a need for a lot of coherence, actually, even across the development assistance portfolio, let alone the development, diplomatic, trade, security um, dimensions. Um, the FIAP makes no statement on policy coherence for sustainable development. Um, and there are increasing concerns around the, the ability to bring together development and humanitarian branches. Um, it's challenging for Canada um, to even align these closely related areas because of different risk appetites within GAC, within peace ops development, for example, poor incentives to collaborate internally. Um, and so as a result, I think there's a missed opportunity here. Um, there, there definitely are opportunities for development to be more strategic and more coherent, but I'm not sure the, the amalgamated department has really realized them. Hmm. Rajan, maybe I, you can just pick up from there your reactions on, uh, on the idea of a comprehensive approach um, and what's sort of needed for us to advance in that respect. I think maybe what, what is different today as a result of this kind of global shift or transformation that I think we all agree is underway is, is an increasing awareness of, of just how, to be frank about it, how limited Canada's capacities are, uh, both financially and, and in terms of, uh, of human resources. Um, I, I think a, a future policy to be effective really has to uh, think through in, a, in an honest and uh, deep and thoughtful way, um, you know, challenging questions around focus, around where and how uh, we are going to focus the, the limited resources uh, that we have. You know, I, I think this is just the beginning of a conversation that is going to have to uh, introduce a, a, a new kind of realism to uh, our approach to both development assistance, our defense policy, uh, and foreign affairs. And I think that realism at times will be difficult for Canadians because we have traditionally led with a, a values approach. And we have traditionally felt that the, the expostulation, the advancement of our, our interests, our national interests, was somehow um, unsightly or not modeling the best of, of uh, Canadian virtue and values. But, but I think out of necessity, that is going to have to change as a result of a, a much more difficult, competitive, uh, marginal world for a small power. We're not a middle power. We are a small power uh, to operate uh, in. And these are going to require difficult political questions and trade-offs and, frankly, 
you know, challenging political leadership to bring that that type of national conversation uh, to the fore. You raise important points that we hear often when uh, in getting involved in foreign policy conversations around the need to make difficult choices. And in fact, Canada has a history of engaging in almost every table, one would argue, where, you know, and if we are going to look at policy coherence, if we are going to say that our global impact has its limits, where do we begin in terms of starting to make some of those choices? Where is Canada's particular value add? And I would challenge that uh, oftentimes we look at foreign policy from a domestic lens. What do we think is important? When often, when if we took an outside-in approach and looked at how Canada could be contributing to addressing some of the world's greatest needs or needs for progress, we might come up with some different uh, sort of priorities. Um, I wonder, Rudyard, you opened that conversation. Do you have any thoughts about how we can advance on focusing Canada's foreign policy? Well, you know, there's an old kind of quip that, you know, there is no foreign policy. There is only domestic policy. And I think, unfortunately, that is that is all too too true. There are strong domestic political prerogatives that that governments have that influence and color and and that they they seek to satisfy through uh, through development assistance through foreign foreign policy. It is it is politicized. It's not a, a kind of meritocracy uh, of ideas. So I think that will always be an ongoing uh, challenge. But I, but I like your idea of thinking from the outside in and um and thinking in a sense, and so I don't have clear answers to this, but if you wanted to make a few focused bets, you know, what what would those be? Um, and could we develop some consensus around around those, either in terms of geography or thematic or or some some combination of the two? I, I don't think we're there yet. I think we're in fact a long way from that type of conversation. Because again, I think there, there, there are powerful myths that operate when it comes to our vision of our role in the world. The, the myth of the middle power remains incredibly strong, not just amongst the Canadian public, but I think amongst a lot of practitioners. And that's why I challenge practitioners to think that this, this is a time really for that, for a much more fundamental rethinking than, than maybe we assume uh, is, is required. People maybe feel that this is a moment for course correction and adjustment. I'm not so sure about that. Well, um, Brian, the Canadian Business Council has actually specifically put out a report uh, in October uh, looking at a better future for Canadians, um, had six recommendations in there, one of which was a call for a foreign policy review. We've heard such calls before. Um, there have been many. Um, why is the Canadian Business Council calling for that? And, and what could that look like in terms of you know, maybe not another review that sits on a shelf, but actually mm -hmm. getting to answering some of these tough questions that have been raised already. Well, uh, that was really motivated by what we've witnessed over the past few years, particularly, um, you know, watching Canada's relationship uh, with China and how that's been managed. Uh, and, you know, we haven't had a serious foreign policy review since 2001. When you think about the pace of change uh, over that time period, I think it, it merits a serious rethink of how we're positioning ourselves in the world um, so that was what motivated our thinking behind, you know, pushing for this comprehensive review. You know, the good news is, though, that we, we have shown recent examples where we have taken a comprehensive approach to a foreign policy challenge. 
And we've proven that we can do it. And the, the best example on the commercial side is how we engaged with President Trump uh, through the NAFTA renegotiations. So we can do it. It was a full court press by government. They created a bipartisan advisory council. They engaged stakeholders from across the country. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's positive. Then you look at China and we just simply seem to be incapable of having a healthy debate in Canada about the rise of China and how we manage that relationship uh, in the context of sitting next to the United States. So uh, it can be done, but we're failing on other fronts. Just a quick interjection, you know, it's worth it's worth remembering that in that that in our, quote, successful NAFTA negotiation, there's a clause in the new treaty that indicates that not only can Canada not enter into a free trade agreement with a non-market economy, uh, we can't even enter into negotiations without the permission of uh, the U.S. government. And I just think that's an interesting example of these new powerful wedges that are forming out there that are squeezing Canada's uh, kind of freedom of movement, our, our mobility internationally. Uh, and I agree, we don't have a coherent dialogue around China, but let, let's be honest that our dialogue with America has, has shrunk our, our options uh, globally, at least when it comes to trade with, quote, uh, non-market economies. And, and some might say that's a somewhat somewhat startling uh, effect or impact on our own sovereignty, our own ability to chart uh, a collective global future for Canada. But so we've gone down one sort of important path of Canada's foreign policy around our trade relations, but there are also many others. And I wonder how, how can we look at actually bringing together these integrated priorities? Is there a way for us to actually... Um, table together Canada's human rights commitments, Canada's trade commitments, Canada's security interests. Um, How do we begin to tie these pieces together, acknowledging that there are so many stakeholders involved in this? Um, Do you think it is possible to chart uh, a, a way forward towards a more comprehensive approach to foreign policy? I think in some ways we already are. I think we have to be bolder and more uh, visionary in the way that we do that and and less concerned about the neighbor to the south, as I said. Uh, I, I think one example, and I'm going to use um, one that's close to my work, is a national action plan on women, peace, and security, which the government also launched um, in the last uh, three years. And this involves nine departments across the government, including the Canadian Armed Forces and National Defense, as well as many other departments. And this is a model, I think, for cross-the-government cooperation and collaboration towards some common goals on security. And, you know, I I guess I'm always concerned when I hear foreign policy conversations turn to realism, because what is realism in foreign policy? Often it's it's defined by the status quo and and business as usual. That's realistic. All too often, that's what we hear. Uh, what we also see, though, is that doing something radical like focusing on conflict prevention has, in the past, proven to be showing results. And I think that the women, peace and security model within the government can be built upon. And if we implement it more robustly and invest resources, we're going to see some real, um, we're going to demonstrate leadership globally uh, in foreign policy. 
we can't do everything. I agree with those who've said we have to focus. We have to uh, decide what our priorities are and then invest. We need more ODA. We need to increase the amount of money that we're spending. And, you know, it's not an electorally popular issue, but I think if you link it to domestic issues like climate, right, 75% of Canadians say that an energy transition is necessary and will happen. Uh, And even in Alberta, that number is as high as 60%. This is a domestic and global priority. It's one area where we can show real leadership, and there's a huge opportunity. So in some ways, we have to – that's realistic, because that is the future. We're not going to be able to move forward on this planet unless we're able to take that on both domestically and globally. And there are partners out there. There are. Nalima, do you want to maybe pick some of that up and see where, where you're thinking around some of the priorities Canada should be making? And maybe you can uh, reflect on uh, Rachel's point about whether we should be investing more, either in ODA or on foreign policy more broadly. Yeah, um I, I will pick up on Rachel's point because I think we saw in the last, uh, the recent election, how aid was used um, really as a wedge to potentially polarize the electorate. Um, so Shear's proposal, the Conservative's proposal, to cut 25% of the aid budget um, toward middle-class Canadians with tax break um, was, I think, an attempt to use aid to cultivate a political base. Um, and I... I don't think it was particularly successful. Um, And I think it's interesting to contrast that Canadian example with examples from other countries, particularly in Europe, where aid has been used quite successfully um, to to polarize electorates. And um, I think um, it would be important to to invest, absolutely. Um, But I think it's important because I think Canadians think it's important. Um, And I I think it's also a means to potentially um, generate um, a broader base of support. So I think moving forward, um, as Canada hopefully does invest, it also needs to think about how it will target aid skeptics. Um, and because those, those skeptics do exist, because without converting um, those voters, I think the potential for aid to be used um, to advance more populist and nationalist sentiment definitely exists in Canada. Maybe part of the paradigm shift has to be stop viewing aid as charity, right? These are not beneficiaries overseas. These are partners. And I think that that's an important part of the aid shift, that we still are caught in that paradigm that these are beneficiaries of our largesse. That is absolutely not true. Um, All of the research looking at women, peace and security, for example, uh, there's an excellent academic out of Texas, Texas A&M, Valerie Hudson. There's a clear link between state security and and inequality or equality. The greater the, the equality in a society, the greater the state security. So it makes sense for us to invest and to work with partners because it's a, it's a question of national security. Well, it certainly is. I think all of these issues clearly come out as being interconnected. Um, we have, however, a bit of a challenge around foreign policy and investing in this space because, you know, it seems to be uh, um, difficult to make the uh, domestic argument for investing tax dollars in all elements of our foreign policy and the challenges around public opinion as Nalima raised um, during the election around ODA and and the announcement of proposed cuts is only one of the elements of that. And we, we, 
So there, if we recognize that Canada is a middle or small, as Rudyard says, global power, um, and if we are increasingly vulnerable uh, around the globe in recognizing that, then it, it seems like a consensus emerges around the need to invest more here. But how do we make that case? Um, and is it possible? And, and then where, where do we put, uh, put those investments? And I think these are really challenging yeah, just questions. To, uh, Go ahead, just to Ryan. jump in here for a moment, you know, it is, it is remarkable that in the last, in this most recent federal election, there was almost no discussion of foreign policy, foreign aid, yeah. and defense policy. Uh, you know, we, we actually tried to organize a, a leaders debate repeating what we did in 2015, uh, a, a leaders debate on Canadian foreign policy. Uh, needless to say that that did not happen. But regardless of our efforts, um, the just complete absence of any sustained discussion of Canada's place in the world at a time, again, of great geopolitical uh, uncertainty uh, really is striking. And one has to kind of think that through a bit. And I mean, you can blame the, the political class for that, but you also have to acknowledge that as been, as we've discussed here, you know, there is a voting public that does not seem particularly engaged or interested in these issues. Yeah. And, you know, just to build on that, what's particularly fascinating uh, about that is that the public is directly impacted by what's going on in the world now. And just a couple of recent examples. I mean, who would have thought that the arrest of the CFO of Huawei would have an impact on canola farmers in Saskatchewan, right? I mean, the interconnected nature of these issues is so significant. Or you look at climate change, where we're seeing predictions that the average Canadian family is going to spend about $500 more a year on groceries directly as a result of climate change and the impact on, on crop yields. So the, these global events are having direct impacts on everyday Canadians, Yet at the political class, we're not seeing those debates emerging. And, you know, I wish I had the answer. I don't. But it's fascinating to see that direct connectivity. Now, we're in a minority government context. We don't know how long this government will last. We've talked about a lot of topics, many of which I feel we could speak all day about. But I'd like to maybe close this podcast by asking you what you would like to see as progress um, between now and the end of this minority government with respect to advancing Canada's foreign policy objectives in any form that you deem fit. And perhaps I could start with uh, Nalima. Yeah, I, I think I would like to see greater honesty about some of the trade-offs um, between some of the very ambitious um, SDG, SDGs to which Canada has committed and how that plays out against some of um, their commercial interests, whether that be in the arms export sector or in terms of, of climate change, in terms of um, moving Alberta away from um, away from its dependency on fossil fuels, um, and I think um, Canadians are a sophisticated um, and educated um, bunch, and I think presenting those trade-offs, um, the opportunities, the costs, the risks that exist, um, but also maintaining a commitment. To some of the, the clear objectives that they've, they've set out in the CIAP in particular. Um, because I, I like the idea of looking outside and trying to blend Canada's overseas objectives um, based on needs overseas with its domestic um, orientations. And I, I would like to just see more, more honesty in where that is possible and where that be, might be more difficult. 
I love what you said about honesty. <laughs> I, I would uh, echo that. I, I would love to see that conversation. I agree that the Canadian public is sophisticated and educated, and I think that we underestimate the electorate rather than overestimate them. I would like to see more focus on young people. I, I My faith is in the generation that's coming up now. I think they are speaking to each other. They are um, looking at issues in a much more holistic way. I think climate change is driving many of them. And I think that it's a matter of really this government, I think, um, has taken important strides but towards uh, greater youth engagement. But I think all of us as a sector in the development, human rights, and more broadly, uh, those interested in foreign policy really need to engage with younger Canadians because this is they are the future, but also they are the ones who are already, I think, much more progressive in their thinking and open to the significant change that we'd like to see in Canada. Yeah, I'd, I'd really like to see progress uh, on the multilateral institution front. I think that would be uh, a huge uh, success if Canada, particularly at the World Trade Organization, I think this is kind of the sleeper issue of 2020 that doesn't deserve or uh, doesn't get the attention it deserves, given the importance of uh, open rules-based trade for Canada as a, as a relatively small global players. So I'm hoping that the government will redouble efforts to find some sort of solution there so that we can have certainty uh, going forward. It's a big ask, but it's critically important. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this minority government plays out. I mean, there there is the potential here for the NDP and uh, the Liberals to have an alignment around some of these issues in a more uh, kind of ambitious vision for um, Canadian foreign assistance. At the same time, I, I think that by virtue of being a minority government, uh, a lot of domestic priorities are going to be uh, kind of front and center uh, in terms of the political conversation and the, and the work of parliament. So uh, I, I think as the work, uh, some work is going to reside with the listeners to this podcast in terms of continuing to ensure that the development assistance debate and conversation, you know, remains a vibrant one uh, in the public square. And that this minority parliament um, uh, does take on the mantle of responsibility for thinking through uh, a, a renewed uh, Canadian policy uh, abroad, um, because as we've all discussed, this is a the clock is ticking. Things have changed. Uh, we we're, we're now playing catch up and uh, it's never good to be uh, on defense. Um, when so many of our interests from trade to diplomacy to aid uh, are in play. So uh, there's work to do. There certainly is work to do. And I think it's through conversations like this that we can move forward. And I think you've all stated out really important priorities that we could see deployed by this government mandate. But I'm, I'm marked also by the increased attention given to this topic, certainly among those that follow it, and the sense that we need to be having conversations like this that confront the different perspectives. I think it really will be incumbent on us and our respective communities to elevate those discussions and not solely let government come up with its priorities in a vacuum. It's really important that the non-state actors be voicing their perspectives, as we're doing here. And certainly one, one of my hopes that we can advance that all together over the, over the coming years. So, Rachel, Rudyard, Brian, Nalima, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an incredibly interesting and rather timely discussion given the current foreign policy developments. 
Um, I think we can all pretty safely say that 2020 is likely to be an interesting year for international affairs. So thank you so much for joining us. 